Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today to Dr. Matere Howard and hearing more about her career journey. Matere is in fact a double doctor, having graduated with her medical degree in 1994 and then her PhD in 2012. She's a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland Medical School and has a particular focus on Indigenous health outcomes. She's a leading Māori health researcher with over 50 peer-reviewed scientific publications to her name. And alongside her research and her lecturing, she's also a clinician and is a GP at Papakura Marae Health Clinic. Matare has also contributed her expertise, serving on a number of health committees and boards, including the Health Research Council of New Zealand. Her efforts have been widely recognised and she's received many awards, including 2018 when she was awarded the prestigious L'Oreal UNESCO Women in Science Award. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about her career journey today. Morena Matare, and thank you for joining me. Morena, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. So the first question I'd love to ask is if you think back to when you were a child or, or perhaps even a teenager, what careers were you thinking about? What careers did you aspire to? Well, I was actually inspired to do medicine after going to pick up my younger sister from hospital and my grandfather, my mum's father, Ngāturi Wirekake, was in the car with me And apparently I was looking at all the people going in and out of the hospital and I made some comment to him about hardworking people. And he said, I think you should become a doctor when you grow up. And he was a, I guess, a leader in our whanau. He was a a tohunga, so he was a very learned man. He'd gone to um, Awanana to learn whakapapa and had travelled away from his village to study at college And so he was very much about education. And when he said um, he wanted his mokopuna to do medicine, the whole whānau got in behind him and encouraged me right from that very young age. I have to be honest, I don't know that I always thought I would get there in the end. And so I did have other things in my mind that I enjoyed as I went through school. I always enjoyed, I guess, engaging with very good teachers at high school and at primary school. And I always thought perhaps teaching would be a career I would go into. But I just loved science. I really enjoyed the chemistry and the physics and the maths. And so it was going to be something to do with science, but something to do with people. And I'm lucky to be in the position where I am now, where I get to combine all of those things, the teaching, the science and the research aspect of it, as well as working with people. Yeah, wonderful foresight from your grandfather as well. And as you say, nice to see now actually that you're able to combine many of those with those different elements. You, you talked in Matere about enjoying the chemistry, the physics, the maths. What was it, or maybe what is it still about science that you really enjoy? 
I was interesting to think that I got into science because I don't have any scientists in my family. My dad is a, a sociologist, but my mum was working in health. She was a dental health nurse. And I think it was always instilled in me from her that we should have good evidence behind some of the health decisions that we make. And so she, even as a kid, we would travel around a lot with dad's work and she would always ensure that if the water wasn't fluoridated, she would provide extra fluoride to us kids because she was aware of the evidence that fluoride helps protect your teeth. You know, this was... 40, 50 years ago, mm. she was doing this with us. So I think the idea of building up evidence, being able to use that in ways that are going to be practical in people's lives so that they can, you know, take charge or take control of their lives and be empowered to look after themselves and their well-being, that was always attractive to me. But I think equally having excellent science teachers. We were at a school out in the country. We we had very few students going through to the last year of school, but we had one fabulous, stunning chemistry teacher who used to turn up in her little hot rod and her tight mini skirts and stiletto shoes, but she just had the brains of (laughs) something, you know, she was another level in terms of her ability to teach us as well as inspire us girls to want to do science as a career. And yeah, I think it was really important having a great teacher to support us to do that as well. I think it makes a massive difference. And I think, as you said, particularly for girls in science, where sometimes it's, well, it's, it would be great to have more girls pursuing science further on in their lives as as a career and being represented in various scientific fields. But that teacher, an inspirational teacher, can make such a difference along the way. Mm. Then, obviously, you went off to medical school. You got your your, your medical degree. Then tell me about the first few years of your career. What were some of the highlights and challenges? Yeah, so I graduated from Auckland. And I've always wanted to be a bit different from the rest of my group. It was always interesting as from high school, wanting to move on from my friends. I just thought it was important to open my horizons a little bit. And from Auckland, I actually was one of three students from our class of 120 to go down to Wellington to do the first part of my training in the hospital. I I loved Wellington. You know, it was very funky and creative and arty. And I just thought the opportunity to meet new people, be at the hub of where all the decision-making was happening in terms of health policy and stuff like that. And the opportunity to work with the uh, dean at that time of Wellington Medical School was Eru Pomare, who was the first Māori dean of a medical school. And I just thought, actually, what a fabulous thing to be able to work with another Māori leader in health. And a lot of your career has specialised in areas of Māori health, Indigenous health. Mm. What prompted you to go down that route? Yeah, again, that was probably through Eru and he and his group, so Vera, Keith Ormsby and others in the Edu Pulmata unit were writing um, these kind of data books, health data books called Haora Māori books. And they were grouping together all the data around different health conditions. So the chapters were dedicated to things like asthma and heart disease and infectious diseases. And one of those chapters actually looked at heart disease and access to 
gold standard evidence-based interventions to manage heart disease and showed that Māori were not receiving that equitably. And I thought that was, you know, I've always been interested in social justice sort of things and I thought that was obviously unjust and wanted to look at that more and understand it more and get clinicians thinking about and reflecting on their own practice and their decision-making and whether there was some bias or discrimination as part of that process. So it was actually Edu in those books that really inspired me to want to do more in that area and bring my colleagues alongside that process so that we were, it wasn't just about trying to blame people, it was actually trying to change the the structures or systems that were in place that actually contributed to those inequities so that we could make a difference. And what changes have you seen in that area over the, the course of your career? Yeah, so we did do a fantastic study. Unfortunately, it was never properly published, but we did do a lot of dissemination through the the different kind of peer groups and things like that. So that study actually did show that there was some clinical decision-making did depend a little bit on a person's ethnicity and where they lived and perceptions of whether or not that person might carry on with treatment, if that makes sense. We presented that to cardiologists and I had a couple of them get up and storm out of the room and and say to me, they're sick of being accused of racism in their health delivery. And I I had to say, you know, well, I'm sick of seeing data like this. I'm, I'm sick of seeing the fact that we're dying from these conditions and yet being denied life-saving treatment. And I'm not here to blame anybody. I'm actually here to say, what can we do better? Mm. But it was a learning process for me too, to understand that when you do deliver this sort of information to my colleagues and to myself, you need time to process that information and you need time to be able to think it through, ask the questions that you need to and know that it's it's true, mm. <laughs> it's significant, but equally that you can do something about it. It was great to work with some colleagues and what we did is then turn it into a kind of a quality improvement process and say, actually, ethnicity and equity are issues of excellent care. And so if you're able to show that you're providing care to all people equitably, that suggests that you're you're doing an excellent job. And so now clinicians aspire to want to do that. They aspire to show and compete against their other colleagues that they are delivering equitably Mm. across the board to all people. And we've been able to show that now that 20 years ago there were these stark differences between Māori and non-Māori, whereas today we're actually seeing that, and I know it's a cliche, but we are seeing the closing of the gap so that people are getting access to things that they deserve. And how incredibly rewarding that must be for you to see that change over time. I I love it. I love seeing it. I love the fact that people are, you know, surviving and living and hopefully thriving with this life-saving treatment. But equally, I think it's great for our young students to see too because for them it can also be overwhelming to think that you as the small pebble in this big thing we call a health system can't possibly make any difference when actually just some little tweaks like that make a huge difference. And um, they love seeing it too. They love seeing the evidence of uh, what we're doing is working. 
and absolutely inspiring for kind of others coming through. And a lot of us feel like that. We're just one small person. What difference can we make? But as you say, that actually having that data-driven approach, being able to shift the conversation away from blame into actually how can we make this better? What are the solutions? How can we, what's the best practice here? And I think it's a, it's a fantastic story. Then, Matara, how did you then shift into including lecturing as part of your portfolio of work? <laughs> that was more of a, I guess, luck, really. Your fortune was that I finished the PhD and applied for a job as, as a lecturer at the University of Auckland with Paparangi um, and the Tukupanga Hawara Māori at the Auckland Medical School. And as part of that role, you have to do teaching. And I took over the fourth year class, which is the first year mostly of clinical work. So it's the students as they're about to go into hospital. And we thought, for me, that was great because it was, I loved going from the lectures of the first three years into actually putting that, what we'd learned into practice. And so I I was hoping I could inspire (laughs) the students to, to feel the same. And we tried to do some real creative, funky things with our classes because we're not actually taught how to be teachers. So I was flying by the seat of my pants a little bit. I knew what I thought would be good. I worked with a couple of great teachers in my department, Sonia Fanua and Terry Coe, who both won awards for their teaching. And they were able to show me how to, kind of the epistemology of teaching and how that's really important in terms of getting the students on board and getting them engaged over the whole year. But what I did realise is that I'm probably a bit more of a, not an introvert. And so I did struggle with these big classes of 250 plus students at a time, sometimes up to a thousand, and found myself moving more from those big classes to the one-on-one sessions, which you do with supervision. You know, what I'd taken a long time to get my PhD. It was a good 10 years of having to take time off to be able to afford to live, have children, keep up my clinical work, keep up my kind of academic practice as well. And I wanted to support other Māori women and kaupapa Māori clinicians into and through academic careers too. I saw a a real need to have people dotted throughout the university who are going to contribute to good Māori health teaching. As much as I can, I try and dedicate most of my teaching to supervision of students one-on-one, either summer studentships through post-grad and into PhDs. And I love that aspect of my work because it's such a um, privilege to do post-grad study like that. You get to sit down and know something so well (laughs) and, and meet people who have similar thinking or who challenge you but in manner enhancing ways and giving students that opportunity to meet people from around the world and bounce ideas with them and learn from them it's just beautiful Mm, it is and also with that I could see although your work is a lot of that supervision work maybe one-on-one or small groups actually by yourself just as kind of your chemistry teacher did a long time ago by yourself inspiring those individuals, actually, they will go on and inspire tens, hundreds, thousands of other people or create change that might impact many other people as well in the future. Oh, I hope so. And I'm already seeing that already. With I've got some, I just, 
I should be jealous of them. You know, they're just stunning women and men, these students, and who are so kind and but yet so smart. And I see them already mentoring and looking after junior and emerging researchers behind them. And I, it's, yeah, I feel like a bit of a proud mother chook um, <laughs> seeing them do that. And I just think that's great to create a more collaborative and a better way of working with people in the in universities. It can be quite dog-eat-dog in there sometimes and a lot of hierarchy, a lot of not supportive, not so mana-enhancing. And I hope that teaching in ways that inspire my students to practice in, with kindness as well. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And you yourself, you also still maintain that kind of very practical role as a GP at Papakora Marae. What does that give you as part of your career? It's very grounding. I come home and I I work towards the end of the week out there. So Friday nights I get home and I need to take a bit of a breath before I walk in the door and my husband and kids know that it's been a rough day. So it's very grounding, but at the same time, I couldn't just work in the university. I do need to know that the stuff that we're doing there is going to be meaningful in people's lives. And so I need to go to people, places like Papakura and know that what we're doing in the university is going to work for them. And equally, I take that experience from Papakura back into academia and talk to the experiences of my community. I love the teamwork of working in a clinic and looking, all of us in there looking after each other and knowing each other's strengths and limitations and being able to fill those gaps for each other. I love working with our nurses and reception, pharmacists. and But I also love the fact that in our clinic, we have access to the social services because we know that health isn't just about medicines and surgical interventions. It's very much about community empowerment, addressing those wider determinants for health like poverty and justice and education and having access to a lot of those services in the Marae itself. Is, I love it. I can hear that coming through. I can hear that kind of real passion. <laughs> and also I think it's, it is so important that actually the, the people who, if you're doing research or if you're teaching, to still have that groundedness, that connection to what happens in real life. And, and that works both ways. Yeah. I wanted to come back, Matere, you, you commented before about kindness. And obviously it's one of the words at the moment uh, being 2020. Yeah. But also in terms of, it strikes me that's, Often that kind of sense of of purpose and improving health is one of the reasons that people get into medicine. But sometimes people, as they go, maybe get a bit taken over, particularly maybe if it's going into surgery by the money that potentially you can earn. Mm. And so how does that, have you got that kind of strong sense of kindness and sense of purpose in in your work? It was funny because I didn't actually realise that was such an important value to me. And only, it was only recently I went to a wedding, my one of my supervisors, Kath McPherson, and the whole theme of the speeches at that wedding were about her kindness to people and how she looked after people but pushed them, but in a, a kind way. And I've always liked this concept of being manner enhancing. I think that we should be able to critique each other and pull each other up when we need to, but it shouldn't be critical. 
these two kind of values of mana enhancing and kindness, but also critiquing, came together more recently for me. But you're right. I think I've, I see it with the medical students. We um, did a, a bit of a review of some of their work over the first year that I started teaching. And I noticed I would teach at the beginning of the year about Māori health and the first group of students who would submit their assignments, it was very much a treaty and all, the, all of these sorts of great things were coming out through their reports. But the last group of students, by the end of the year, had reverted back to, oh, it's their fault that they're obese and because they, they smoke mm. and they, they don't have a good education, they don't try very hard. And I clicked then about the concept of the hidden curriculum, which is where students are exposed to a different learning, which isn't formal learning, but it's certainly the values and the ideas and the concepts that they're exposed to in the hospitals by, like you say, their consultants, their seniors, who have very concrete ideas of health and health inequities and where the uh, causes sit, which is often with the individual rather than those wider things that can impact on people's health. We had to address that just in our our one year of teaching and say, actually, we need to continue to expose them to being reflective and to be thinking about, to continue to understand that it's not just an individual issue or individual behaviour that drives some of these inequities and what is your role in this? So we extended our teaching to not just be at the start of the year, but they had online modules throughout the year in which we just kept pushing them online and got them submitting work and reflecting on what they were seeing in the hospitals. And it was interesting. They did all talk about the fact that they were seeing racism Mm. in the hospital. There was a lot of individual blaming, victim blaming of people and that they could see that, you know, it was important to continue to learn and self-assess that throughout their careers. So I hope that we are starting to understand better that hidden curriculum and know that it happens, but equally know that we can do something about it as teachers. And when I just some of the medical students coming through now, they're just stunning. They're just beautiful, like you say, kind-hearted, want to do the best, but we'll always have the ones who are going to go down that pathway of, you know, thinking of medicine as the hierarchy of medicine, the money that's attached to it. But equally, I'm seeing more and more beautiful people who want to do the best, who recognise their role in providing good quality care to, to all people and who want to make, make the world a better place and not just talk it, but actually do it. That must be great to see. And I think a great lesson in there about the, the power of reflective practice, actually mm-hmm. taking the time to reflect on what you might be seeing, your own thoughts and feelings about it and and how people can grow and improve through that. And that's the kind of thing that hopefully will also stick with them through life and their careers as well. I was keen to understand no career is all roses and easy. What have been some of the the toughest challenges or moments in your career? I think it was certainly challenging the hours in the hospital and I admire my friends and colleagues who stayed on in the hospital system and continue to work there. I just, 
yeah, I just think they're amazing to to do those long hours, to have increasing um, work put on them as we develop new medications and new interventions. You know, the work is just increasing and I'm not sure we've got the workforce to do that. Having said that, I think primary care, where I work now, is also having to undergo some changes. So COVID's really upended the (laughs) the whole health system. And we've felt it the most, I think, in primary care. We've had to change the way that we practice on the smell of an oily rag. And there was a lot of kudos given to doctors and healthcare workers, but a lot of that was for the hospital workers. And we would even notice it as from our clinic at the supermarkets where we were told people, you know, health workers would be able to jump the queue, but we would present as a you know, GP and be told to get to the back of the line, yet we were probably doing more work than any of our hospital colleagues who were sitting there twiddling their thumbs waiting for people to come in because all their camp, you know, clinics were cancelled. That's challenging. It's, it's the kind of the valuing of others within the health system over others continues to be a challenge for us, whether that's the workers who are doing the work right through to um, the people who are trying to access the, the health care. It's been challenging. Academia can be challenging. Um, you know, I think it attracts a certain type of people. And like I said, there is that hierarchy and a bit of the ivory tower within the university. And so just knowing that it's good to get out of that system a little bit and to get back in touch with communities as much as you can has been really important for me and I would encourage other people to do that as well. I've continued to push the, the whole Māori and women and diversity in boards and in the boardrooms. You certainly clashed with some of my um, male colleagues on different occasions and pushing them to understand that we need more women, we need more Māori on some of these decision-making committees and boards. And, you know, while it's easier just to bang your head on the wall sometimes, you've just got to keep going and keep pushing for that to happen. And then having your family, (laughs) you know, I, I love working hard But at the same time, you know, I want to be a good mum. And during this COVID, my daughter, my nine-year-old, as I would go to work, because we were quite busy during COVID, and she was obviously seeing things on the news where health workers were dying overseas, she would become very upset with me going to work and worried that I might not come home or I might get sick and that was really stressful and I overheard someone asking my kids a couple of weeks ago you know you're going to become a doctor like your mum and they both quickly said no (laughs) (laughs) she's she's so stressed (laughs) I just think oh that's not good for them to think that's what being a doctor is all about and it's for me to work on over the next few years is to try and get a better life work balance but we're all trying we're all Nobody's perfect. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. And I've yet to find anyone who's who would say their balance is kind of tip top 100%. And as a working, I've got three kids myself as a working mum. And I absolutely appreciate that challenge of you're doing work that you love and is meaningful and has that broader purpose. Then you work hard at it and you give your all to it at the same time that you still love your kids and yeah. want to. And to be there for them and do the best for them as well and finding that balance is tricky yeah so right yeah 
you know, you said your job is full on, at times it's stressful. Mm. What do you do personally to help find a bit of balance for yourself? So it was funny, I was sort of, I was having a particularly challenging time at, at my uni work a couple of years ago and I had a call. I used to paddle outrigger canoeing in my younger days when I started the PhD and I had a bit more time on my hand and I was quite good if I do say so myself, but I had abs and things back then and then two kids and two caesareans later that kind of went out the door. But a friend met a penniheader who works at um, Wanganga. Awanuiarangi rang me out of the blue two years ago when I was really struggling and said, I think you need to come back to paddling after having quite a big break. And I went, actually, that's exactly what I need to do. I need to become more physical. I need to be back in touch with the water. I love being on the ocean. And I need to be back with a team of women who inspire me and who are supportive and loving and showing aroha and coming together to compete as a team, I love that kind of camaraderie side of the paddling. So I got back into paddling about two years ago and we went to nationals and went hard last year. We were meant to paddle at the World Champs. We made it through to the New Zealand team and paddle at World Champs in Hawaii last yeah, last month. But unfortunately, COVID cancelled that. And so instead, I went back to study. And so I've, I've had to drop the paddling this year and get back into my study again. But I'll definitely get back into paddling over the summer, I think, after Christmas. Because I, I, I love paddling and being on the ocean. And I love my garden. My grandmother, and she was my namesake, Matiri Ngārongoa was her name. She was a fantastic gardener, couldn't speak English, but she used to win all the, apparently all these awards up in uh, Kaiko here for the best garden. And so my mum says I've got her gardening genes and I love that quote when they talk about once we're gardeners. So I'm keen to get back into the garden and, yeah, just with the study, my kids are saying, mum, you're so full on with work and study at the moment. And my last exam is December 3rd. And I said, December 4th, kids, I'll be back in the garden. I'll re-engage with you and I'll re-engage with the garden and get rid of these weeds. So I'm looking forward to that. Fantastic. And those two things, whether it's paddling or whether they're gardening, they're outdoor physical things that must provide such a contrast to your work. So then I'm sure absolutely help recharge you as well. And Mm. we talked there a bit about some of the toughest moments. What, What have been some of your proudest career moments? I think definitely getting the L'Oreal Award was an amazing opportunity and moment for me. I'd seen the call go out for emerging women scientists and at that time I thought that this is my one opportunity to apply for it. And I'd looked at the previous recipients and I thought they were all women who had trained overseas and then come to New Zealand which is all good, but I just thought, wouldn't it be fantastic to have an Indigenous woman from Aotearoa take this award out and actually show that we too are scientists and you can train here and still be excellent and still be Mm. recognised internationally. Yeah, that was an amazing moment and it meant I got to meet some beautiful women scientists from Australia and I continued to have great relationships with L'Oreal because they do a lot of kind of women's science stuff, but a lot of stuff in the community as well, a lot of work there. So I'm really lucky to be able to continue to contribute to that side of things and enjoy that. And then probably the second thing would be getting the PhD, to be Mm. honest, or just getting that 
done because it was such a long journey. And as I said, with kids, and I remember the last year of it, I I just had my youngest and I used to breastfeed between writing chapters and having her on her little bouncy thing underneath the desk trying to get her to sleep as I'm typing at 10 o'clock at night. And, yeah, it was great because it was great. I could spend time with her and take that year off to be with my baby, but um, equally being able to write and finishing that off, it was just, I really enjoyed that year. Mm. And as you say, hard fought over a long journey, as you described it, but in some ways getting it therefore makes it even more fulfilling because it was such kind of a a labour of love over a long period of time. Mm. And I read it now and think, oh, gosh, did I write that? (laughs) I read it and think, oh, I sound so brainy, whereas I didn't feel so brainy at the time. I'm not sure sure many of us do quite soon after having a a baby, I have to say, but you never know that obviously it was all there. It was all you. Where do you see your career now heading in the future? I I love this combination of the academic as well as the um, clinical. So I'd love to carry that on. I, as you mentioned at the very beginning, I'm in the Department of General Practice now at the medical school. And so looking to take up some leadership opportunities there would be great, I think, and bringing more Māori staff into the medical school and my department in particular, I think is kind of on the horizons for me over these next five years. And then, as I said, (laughs) spending more time with the children or trying not to be so stressed that they don't think um, medicine is a bad, such a bad career sounds good and I think obviously our our kids only see a certain aspect of what we do but as they get older I'm sure they'll appreciate the broader purpose and that the the stress is for a good reason but it's in the and ultimately you can hear it coming through in you it's in service of others. Matero one last question if I may I'd love to hear what career advice you might have for other women. Gosh I think if you really want it you need to I say go for it but know that that's you know, easier said than done. And certainly what a lot of what I've done has taken a lot of planning. It's been incredibly fulfilling, yet at the same time, it has taken a lot of work to get to this point. But now that I'm here, I just, it makes me want to go for more. Plan, have a look at the people who inspire you, talk to them. So I've had some great people to talk to who've really pushed me along and but equally open doors for me to make things a little bit easier where I've needed that. Know that you might not, it isn't all about the money. I've certainly had to make sacrifices financially, especially when I was doing the PhD and trying to hold down a mortgage. It it was incredibly difficult. And my husband and I talk about the fact we lived on mince and sausages for a couple of years there, but that it is worth it in the end. And... Bring good people alongside you throughout. So I've been incredibly fortunate to work with people who have looked after me and who have brought me into projects or into activities that I can put on my CV, but that I have equally enjoyed and have made new networks through. And that's been really useful as well. 
doing a lot of leadership development. You talked before about that self-reflection and I think that's probably the hardest part of the job really is being open to being critiqued by people and so getting that regular feedback from others, doing some leadership training has been really important to me so that I hope that I continue to develop and learn to be a better leader. And then just that ongoing training, I think, is just pushing yourself to learn something different each year. I, at the beginning of each year, we sit down as a whanau and we have both our own personal career goals and life goals, but equally whanau goals so that as a unit we make sure that we know where we need to support each other over the year, where we're going to have to make sacrifices so that someone else in the whānau can achieve their aspirations over that next 12 months. I would encourage you to sit down and do that kind of goal planning on a regular basis and just check in that you're meeting those goals, but knowing that if you're as part of a whānau, you're going to have to look after each other too and you might not be able to meet all of your goals this year, but hopefully bringing your whānau up and letting them achieve their aspirations is going to have wider benefits for everybody. What's just absolutely wonderful advice, Matilda. Thank you. And I think also particularly really appreciated you sharing some of the pieces around it's not going to be easy. There'll be times when it's really hard and there'll be times when you may even question you, what am I doing? but that actually you'll be able to look back and then be proud of of where you've come. But that wonderful piece then also about you talking about your whānau and having those shared goals as well and how you compromise and and work together to achieve overall what is best for for the whānau. Lovely. Matara, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, that wonderful kindness that came through so strongly but also for me, just so fantastic to see those kind of early aspirations of science and and teaching and people all come together in the strands of your career. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your journey. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I actually enjoyed that more than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I'm glad. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.